so I mean, in many ways, that catalyzed who we were and, and of course, and what we've become. So, you know, Duster gave Magic us a huge leg up then. And I always know you made me pay for that as well by insisting that we actually shared an office together, which was a garage in the back of a building. It literally was a garage that we then put in half because we couldn't afford the rent from both of them. So we, you put a mezzanine in the garage and David being the funder took the upper part of the mezzanine. And I remember him all the more in the mornings, just these loud footsteps because we couldn't actually stand up straight in our bottom half. <laughs> so we had to crash down below. And that was how Duster and Magic were born. And it gives you any solace. Sort of 23 years later, I'm sitting in the Duster office in a section of the office that I cannot stand up because it's split in half. And the rest of the team and all of the NGOs we support are sitting downstairs with 20-foot high ceiling. So clearly some things don't change. <laughs> Today I'm speaking to Matthew Spacey, founder of Magic Bus. Magic Bus empowers youth and children across India and the world. And we will be talking about our parallel journeys in the social sector. Well, thank you, Matthew, for coming on today as a guest for No Cost Extension. I'm really grateful. I really was wondering why why isn't Dave calling me up for his podcast? <laughs> I started to feel a little bit of you know. I thought, what have I done wrong? Or, or just maybe maybe he doesn't really like Magic Bus that much. Or I what's going on here? But no, thank you for having me on, and, and thank you for starting this this conversation as well. You know, I think it was absolutely it was a time of almost isolation, personally, mentally, and you know, for, for a lot of people, I think, and good to see it continue post post, uh, uh, you know, post this, this traumatic time. And I think the really critical piece about this is, and like you said, I think we've all spoke about, you know, individually, at least of the, the, the mental challenges we face, the feeling of helplessness, the feeling of also not being in the community at such a time of need because we were protecting ourselves and our families and feeling selfish about that and guilty about that. But I think really to help everyone realize, the listeners especially, that the communities that Magic Bus works with or Educate Girls or Quest Alliance or Shuttleham Center, you know, all of the other great NGOs that we both know, those communities, I guess, have had their form of COVID for generations. They've been on lockdown. They've been suffering. They weren't able to go to work. They haven't been able to go to school. And, and I think really just starting a little bit with it wasn't a COVID that helped you start Magic Bus, but then what was it that really, you know, had you create this organization and decide to devote clearly your time and your life to a certain extent towards this cause? Yeah, and I think that was, by the way, I think that's a lovely analogy, you know, sort of thinking about this sort of poverty of opportunity that exists every day for the children that we work with. And and maybe, yeah, that was a lovely, a special, I guess, a perspective for us as well. And just an insight into that, you know, that sort of that level of how quickly we were almost disabled from any normal data activity, which is probably how most of the children we work with um, feel every day. So thank you. That was a nice insight. So evidently, I'm not Indian. I came to India um, actually when I was about 18, purely by chance, sort of as a gap year, and ended up working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And just that was obviously quite life-changing for me as a young boy. And um, 
and then coming back to the UK and a part of India was just certainly embedded in sort of in my heart. And I was quite keen to continue my involvement really with, with India and the experience I'd had. Eventually, I was asked to come and work in India for a travel company, Cox and Kings, and look at you know, selling holidays to Indians actually in the subcontinent. So that was back in 96. And you know, I remember sort of looking, walking down the sort of, you know, the, the roads of Bombay or driving through this lovely city, the sort of the whole dichotomy of seeing so many people who were living in, you know, in a normal middle class or luxury condition versus, you know, obviously the people that were living in slums and on the streets. And I think this is the beauty of Bombay as well, is it's so much in your face, you can't ignore it. But for me, it was, there was this, as I said, this visual dichotomy was quite shocking. So I felt it's probably only a matter of time before I wanted to get involved in that. I had a, I was a young lad then, 29 years old, and had been given this big job. So that was important to me that I managed to settle down in that. So I spent a couple of years just doing that. But in 98, 99, I started some of the organizations that actually just rattled off. Actually, we started sort of going and knocking on doors and saying, how can I get involved? How can I involve my company? And it was probably more because I was so ill-qualified to work in the social sector that I, I found it very difficult to find a match or for anyone who felt that I had anything particularly valuable to give. It's a thing that I feel still hasn't really resolved itself. You have all this resource that's so mismatched sometimes. And I happened to play a lot of rugby. I played for this incredible rugby club called the Bombay Jim Khan, which is, for those listeners who know Bombay, it's possibly the most exclusive club in the city, probably even in the country. And, and I was lucky enough to enter as a, playing rug, as a rugby player rather than a member. What was interesting was that there were very few rugby clubs in the country in those days. And there was a lot of cribbing about, you know, we don't have anyone to play against. And yet there were these young men all on the sidelines of the rugby pitch every week, throwing the rugby balls around. And this is, you know, this is, I guess, this is a real sort of, uh, for me, it, was, it really was uh, a reflection on this lack of opportunity structures that you have for young people and why weren't they playing rugby? And so it was quite a straightforward connection for me that I would ask those young people on the sidelines to then get to participate in in rugby and I would then train them to be rugby players and so that started the journey really so you know I've often disappointed a lot of people when they say you know we're Magic Bus we have 600,000 children now in the program but there was no great vision then I think it's such an iterative organization it really it almost just happened and so and it was born though very importantly out of this something that I've really enjoyed doing I think if I hadn't enjoyed doing it so much and that is using sport in the outdoors I think it probably would have faltered at the start. And I think that for me has been, it was a very big lesson. And just think, David, as well, you know, you were there pretty soon after that. But, you know, those, again, are the listeners who understand the sort of the socioeconomic sort of sentiment in a city like Bombay. To have young men who live on the street walk in the front door of the Bombay Gymkhana, whatever they had on, and walk into the changing rooms and literally undress and change in front of, you know, the wealthiest of Bombay, and then walk out together and play as equals on a rugby pitch and then come back into the change room because it's all a big part of the sort of, you know, it's all a big part of the game, right? And so, you know, and then go and change and then, you know, and talk and communicate. You know, that was the most outstanding moment of, you know, the entire 23 years of Magic Bus is that realisation, this is what we can achieve. That was sort of day one. So it was a game of rugby. Just talking about your first time in India at the age of 18, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was actually the same time that, the Union Carbide explosion happened. And maybe if you want to touch a little bit upon that, because you had no connection to India, but that explosion made you do something at a very young age. 
sorry, just reflecting before I talk about those earlier days and, and you know what shaped me, David, I think reflect on this whole idea of opportunity. And I think for me today that I've never heard a better definition of poverty than Amartya Sen, which is which is defined by lack of opportunity. You know, you hear of words like the ovarian lottery, this pure chance that someone is born in this hellish condition, and we have the privilege of being born where we are. And you know, I think that certainly was a huge driving force, almost that anger inside you to say, look, you know, I want to put something that I feel is very wrong. I want to put that right uh, to some extent. My sense of, you know, over the course of the 25 years of doing this is that there are some people generally want to get engaged. They want to have impact. And I think we build high walls around our communities and we're becoming more and more isolated from each other and more polarized in many ways. And actually something that we're working on at the moment is how do we start understanding how you make better communities of conversation, you know, around common ground. For me, it was rugby. It could be could be computers or it could be art. It could be music. It could be anything. But generally, when you bring people together that have this common interest, it starts to provide a platform where people can have a more meaningful and more empathetic conversations from both sides. And I think we're almost becoming devoid of that now. And we sort of fall back on you know, this old-fashioned thing of volunteering, which is a very power-based thing, you know, where people come in and they give food, they give money, they give garn, they give, you know, wisdom. And and often, if you ask young people, that's not necessarily what they want or need in a lot of circumstances, and they need to be understood. And then I think there was an amazing study that came out just last week, actually, in India, where if you put someone living in poverty in a relationship with someone who's not living in poverty, I think the number is 20% of those children will will become more affluent, move above the poverty line because there is that interaction. And so for me, a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment, how do you start creating that on a, a massive scale? And um, it lies at the very heart, as you rightly said, David, how we started and why we started Magic Bus. So coming back to, I guess you, you asked me about about Union Carbide. So that was the reason I came to India, actually. And um, I ended up coming here thinking that I would go and work in an orphanage, actually, at the age of 18. And as you rightly said, I had I still people say, why India? And I, I really don't remember. I mean, it's something obviously clicked in my brain. I'd never met anyone who'd been to India. And this was in sort of the late 80s. And anyway, popped on the train. And then, unfortunately, what happened was there was no work in. There was, the promised job didn't exist. And so I ended up going up to the Himalayas to work in a Tibetan refugee center. And I was assigned into a monastery, which scared the pants out of me, to be honest with you, because um, so, they made me sign a contract. And so at the stroke of midnight, I ran away on a train. <laughs> I thought I'm not going, because I would have to live the life of a monk and prostrate at five in the morning, which probably wasn't sort of something that I wanted to do at 18. And then got on a train to Calcutta, which was the only, to be honest with you, it was the only train that was going. So even that was a little bit of, you know, that's, that's how life rolls, isn't it? And I ended up in Calcutta, absolutely loved it, worked for the brothers in Calcutta on a leper colony for half the day and then a TB hospital for the other half and did that, for, I think, nearly eight months. And just, it was obviously life shaping in so many ways. I'm sure set the stage for a magic bus. And I think that's also, again, important for, I think, the listeners at least to realize is that you don't have to have this perfect baked plan because it doesn't really exist. You just need to give yourself the time to engage and engage directly with the community as a whole. Because I think once you start doing that, you understand the intricacies, you understand how they live life and are facing all of these challenges. And I think, again, many individuals sort of wait for 
either that right moment or the right plan or even, you know, this view of, oh, well, I'll get to a certain stage in life and then I'll accept the poverty line and try to do something about it, where perhaps at least my view is if you're above the poverty line, then you should be doing something to help somebody else come out of that poverty line, point blank. I mean, you've nailed that thought, David. I think, you know, the and Magic Bus is what it is today because we made, probably because we made so many mistakes. I personally made loads of mistakes, you know, and I think it's a slightly, I wouldn't say you have to be fearless in these things, but I think you can overthink them for certain, you know, and you, and say this to your listeners by engaging, you know, just even now, your the assumptions that you have about the good you might think you are doing, whether that's the old clothes versus the new clothes or how quickly things need to happen. You know, we live in a society which demands change so fast. And the minute you start a relationship with children from low-income communities, you realize that actually it's probably the same as, you know, the kids you've put through, which actually took you 10, 15 years to shape their behaviors in a way that you felt was appropriate and right. You know, as a middle-class white guy in Bombay, you know, you know, my filter then was, I you know I can solve some of these really big issues quickly. And, you know, I think a lot of people felt the same way. And things like, you know, with these rugby boys, we had 30 rugby boys or so that we could get them all jobs and they wouldn't be poor anymore. And, you know, so that's something we did for all of the children. You know, these were, again, street boys, children living in very marginalized environments. And I think we got them all jobs, you know, within three or four months of being part of the, you know, the rugby team. And I think within three or four months, every single one of them had run away, had been sacked. <laughs> I didn't like the job because, you know, there was no work ethic. There was no sense of that sort of dignity of labor. And to be honest with you, the jobs I was getting for them were far more boring than the musty they were doing, you know, on Fashion Street, you know, and the selling of the black tickets in those days and whatever they were selling and doing. It was far better fun than working as an office admin guy, you know, <laughs> delivering tea to someone's office. And so you realize you can't fix these things quickly and they take time. And, you know, this obviously molded the magic bus, what we call childhood to livelihood, which takes the time and effort to, to work with a young person. And that's often at odds, Dave, with how the world sees the work we do, you know, and, and especially now with how capital flows into the sector and the demands on impact and fast impact and changing things quickly. I mean, I know that's a whole different discussion, but you start to have these make these very difficult choices about what you think might be right for the child and where the money lies, which ultimately pays for the, your work with the child. So, but you find these in the journey you take when you start talking to the young people that you know exist in that environment. So I think that was that's coming back to that point. And I think in hearing you speak and again remembering looking at multiple organizations to support that were working with children in 99 and 2000, realizing that while most of the organizations that existed at the time in Mumbai, at least, uh, were focusing either on health or in education or in shelter, which again, are all very, very important needs, their approach was very directive, which is, you know, you need to do this, or you need to do this, or you need to do this. And I feel what's been unique about the Magic Bus journey and still continues is that you've always felt because of maybe some of the mistakes that if you're not empowering and engaging these youth to make the decision for themselves, i.e. if you're putting people into jobs, they will quit in three months. If you're saying you have to study because it's important, because that's what society accepts, they won't do it. But I feel like you all create sort of this journey for the youth on a consistent basis where they are able to question they're able to debate and they're able to decide on what's right for them. 
and with no judgment whatsoever. And I guess I feel, especially during COVID times when you, like many nonprofit organizations, had uh, huge hits in the budget and had to lay off or not pay you know, a large number of individuals on your workforce, those youth continue to be leaders and serve their community in probably the most dangerous times ever because you've empowered them to make those decisions and they knew what was right, regardless of getting, you know, a salary or a stipend for Magic Bus. Absolutely, David. And I think, you know, I think one of the things we did well some years before COVID was decentralize a lot of the things that we do. And really, we have this darmies of not just skilled, but very empowered young people, you know, have to act quickly and very responsive on the ground. You know, 101 things that will happen in any one day in a village or in a low-income community in a city. And so we sort of really pushed that down the line. And of course, when COVID came, yes, we were all quite impotent sitting in our, you know, our houses, protecting ourselves. But you're absolutely right. This desire to get into the houses and the homes of the then 500,000 or so people that were part of our community, give out food and just touching base with them, really. I think there was this real sense of fear and isolation. And I don't use this word lightly, but these heroes on the ground who were, you know, but I wasn't safe. I wasn't feeling secure enough to go out, but they were out the door. They were straight out the door. You know, I think that really got us through. You know, we, as you rightly said, we have about 2,000 staff and fully paid staff and we had to go on half salaries, you know, and and by and large, I think the sense was that rather than lose staff, let's all take a hit and we want to get through it with that sort of sense of, you know, camaraderie in the whole organisation. I think similar to Duster as well. I mean, I know a lot of nonprofits were had that same view. And can you explain a little bit about what a youth gets in when they enroll into the Magic Bus program? How does one get enrolled? How do you choose which areas to go to? What do they get and where do they if ever, sort of graduate to? You know, so it's it's evolved over, obviously, over the 23 years or so. You know, it's gone from being a 12-year program to a seven-year program and, you know, different lets of levels of inputs and products that we've had. So let me just, so what it looks like today in India, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Myanmar is, if you like, enroll children at the age of 11, 12. It's critical age, we feel, it's just on the verge of puberty for girls as well. So it's a time when we felt that, you know, let's intervene now, especially with a female cohort, because it, when you see the largest amounts of school dropouts, that's when you see the spike in child marriage, etc. So we sort of consciously kept it at that age. And they join a program simply, it's self-selecting. And so when we are in a community, and we only work with below poverty line communities so that defines whether you can or can't join a program and for six months when you're a new joinee in that program it tends to be um, a relationship build between the mentee and the mentor you know every program village or city has an adult or a young person from that community leading the program we have various terms for them but they're generally i think they're called community connect officers and they both deliver the program these community connect officers or and do the house knocking on doors when people aren't around and making sure that, you know, they're the groups, their cohorts of children are attending school. There is always someone there on, you know, available through the course of the childhood to livelihood. So once they join, they're expected to come to at least one magic bus session a week. So that's delivered by the community coordinator or by the local school teacher, depending on our model. That session is structured around a series of sort of globally recognized life skills that any young person across the world, whether it's my children or yours or them or the children we work with, 
are sort of the essentials to being successful and happy in life. You know, whether that's around communication, self-efficacy, whether that's around your ability to continue learning in your journey. So we create what we call experiential learning programs that deliver these lessons, if you like, through games and fun. And so the whole premise of Magic Bus is that children love to play. You know, you can close your eyes and throw a football up or any ball up in a village. And literally, you can imagine every child in that village will gravitate towards that ball. You know, children absolutely love to play. And if you do a good session, every child in that village will come to that Magic Bus program. So it's imperative that it's obviously emotionally safe, physically safe, but also it's just great fun. It's inclusive and, you know, whether it's a game of dodgeball or whatever it might be. But what we do in that session is we have a very carefully crafted uh, pedagogic approach to how we might deliver that game. So if I could just visualize viewers, so we would, let's say we're doing a sort of 101 back to school, you'd draw a line in the sand on one side of the playing field, another line on the other. There'd be a relay race up and down with a football, maybe I mean, two teams. Then we'd put cones in the middle of the uh, the lines and they'd have to dribble their way with the ball around the lines to the other, around the cones to the other line. Then the critical piece of our uh, sessions are once you've done that activity, the mentor will sit under the tree. And in that particular instance, the game will be, guys, imagine what... Imagine this first line being home, this second line being school. Imagine the game without the cones. We put the cones in. I mean, the kids will be, you know, with the cones in, the kids will be kicking the ball everywhere. So, you know, how difficult that is to get from one line to the other. So the cones become a metaphor for the obstacles in their life. So then that's a sort of 101. How do we start talking about why you don't go to school or why it's difficult to go to school? But it's all done in an environment which is, as I said, very inclusive. They're all participating in the discussion. And most of the time, we'll then do that same session with the parents, you know, so there is a reflection also for the parents as well. And then there's time for solutions. And so, you know, and we work with parents and children in a community over a very long period of time to make sure that they are, those lessons are reinforced, reinforced by some of the program, but also when, as I said, physically knocking on doors as well. So, and that continues. So the child will get those sessions from the ages, right from the age of 11, 12, all the way through to 15, 16, 17. We also now have what's called community learning centers. So children can then, because of COVID, because of the, the pandemic and children obviously not being able to go to school for so long, we created um, these learning environments, often digital, sometimes physical, where children can go into those centers and have some level of educational instruction so that their grade levels remain consistent with what they need, what's required at school. So they don't drop out of school, essentially. So that's become a fairly big part of the Magic Bus program now. And then eventually they get to the end of the cycle, the Childhood 2 livelihood, where we have a massive deployment now of of people being trained in employability skills and then placed. We work with, I think, 250 corporate partners. And our job is to create those modern day skills, you know, the customer centricity skilling, the, you know, those employability skills that are going to keep them, keep them in good stead as they join their job. But critically, David, what we do also is we ask the children, we ask them what they want to do, actually. So we focus on a few sectors but start directing the children to the sectors and the jobs that they actually want to. So this is all about asking the question. So hopefully this year we'll place about 60,000 young people in work. So it's been quite prolific and changed somewhat since COVID you know, came along and we've turned our model from being a very physical center. You know, they come to a center to get these skills to now using a lot of AI and digital products actually to do platform learning and then platform placement. 
you know, getting these young people placed through um, sort of modern technology, I think has uh, been quite a, you know, it's certainly accelerated the numbers of children we can work with. Then we track the children. So it doesn't finish there. The moment we track every child for six months after work, so we give them the support they need after work. And the idea is we start building a much stronger alumni system as, as these numbers grow so they can start to support each other. That's the idea is they're all connected to each other and, and able to support, especially in those early days into work, support each other. Uh, in their local communities. So that's the childhood livelihood. It's 11, 12 years old to 18. And some people make the whole journey. Some people don't. You know, I think, you know, we try and make it as easy for them to physically turn up. But, you know, circumstances change and that's absolutely fine. And I think more and more we're thinking about digital platforms to keep young people connected. So whether you're sort of physically able at 13 to come, but you're not 15, you can't because you've got to study. We still have great products for a 15-year-old that are digital and then maybe come back physically for the employability training. You know, So we're exploring much more about, you know, COVID's taught us that, is to, you know, how do we have create a more inclusive platform, whether it's as a digital or physical? I mean, I think just being fortunate to be part of the Magic Bus story for so many years. I'm familiar, I guess, and have worked with many of the young adults or in, and maybe not so young adults anymore and seen them grow. And so if you can maybe talk about one or two individuals, whether it's a Parvati or a Nitin or a Rehman or anyone else for that matter, and, and, and a little bit about sort of their journey and where they are today, I think that would just be fantastic. Yeah, lovely. So, I mean, I think you named, I mean, why not talk about the people you've named? Yeah, because I'm probably closest to them because I've known them for 23 years almost in the journey of Magic Bus, isn't it? So it's, and they're very close, but, and it comes back to the Ovarian Lottery and these amazing people we see every day, smart young people who are very ambitious and want to get on in life and you've given them that window. And so, you know, Parvati, I think she's a rock star really at Magic Bus, but I hope she won't mind. I'm sure she won't mind if she talks about her story quite publicly, but, you know, it was, would join the Magic Bus program when she was very young. I think she was 9, 10, 11 when she joined the Magic Bus program. Her two elder sisters had just got married. They were both, one was 12 and one was 13. She had two younger sisters, desperately, desperately didn't want to get married. And she sort of saw that, I think, in the, you know, in the runway, really. She was about, you know, being primed for marriage at that very young age. And join Magic Bus. And, you know, we, she was living in a construction site in Lower Perel, and we happened to have a program in the local area and joined and made great friends with her mentor. Her mentor became a very huge part of her life and was spending a lot of time with her parents, talking to them about why it's important for poverty to finish her education and not get married and really literally holding her hand through that very difficult conversation, as we as we do obviously with hundreds of thousands of others. And then she managed with the help of the mentor and of course her parents, you know, and the fabulous people, she managed to finish her program at Magic Bus, finish school, then went on to do her bachelor's and then went on to do her master's, actually. And this is, as you remember, this is the context of a girl living on a construction site. When you talk to Parvati about the things that she's most proud of, it will be things like she was able to persuade her parents not to marry off her younger sisters at 13 and 14. So, you know, this is how it works, is that ripple effect through programmes like our own, where she was able to, you know, to change the destiny of those two young ladies simply because she was able to provide the wisdom and guidance to her own parents. And now Parvati now is, she heads our international partnerships. Um, she's in the UK, in the USA, Singapore, doing galas. And um, she's, I think, she's been married now for, gosh, probably three or four years and has a very senior role here in the organisation and as a leading 
discussions on the programme, but also some of the key issues of the poor in India. And so she's an absolute lighthouse. So whenever she goes into a room, she fills it up and uh, I say, you know, and you ask her <laughs> blatantly about what her ambition is. She said, I'm going to run Magic Bus and, and she probably will. So, you know, we'll try and make every effort to, for that to happen as well. I think one of the things that you touched upon earlier was that Magic Bus doesn't just operate in India and you operate in other geographies. And I think the reason that's important is because just like we've seen in the sort of economic trajectory of India and India Inc. in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen the same happen with organizations or NGOs. And so many NGOs, whether it's a Pratham, a Digital Green, social businesses, even like D-Light and others, they've started in India, Chiline, Mail Joel. I mean, the list actually goes on and on. But the hardships, I guess, of what Magic Bus has had to face, both in terms of just growing a nonprofit organization, but also the communities that you serve, they're more similar hardships, I guess, with communities in other geographies, whether that's in Southeast Asia or Africa. And, and so how did you sort of make the decision to sort of focus on India and go global, so to speak? And what were some of the challenges or even mistakes you made in that process? Because I think there's more and more organizations we're seeing, just like companies have it, you know, in the last two decades that have expanded in India or sorry, outside of India, but while still keeping, you know, a full-fledged Indian operation. Yeah, it's a big question to ask. And I think, you know, just, I think there has to be a point of readiness also as, as an Indian operation where, you know, you feel that, you know, whatever you do outside of India shouldn't in any way be detrimental to what you've established and that shouldn't take away, you know, huge amounts of management, mind time, mindset, shouldn't take away a lot of the capital that you might have raised. Because, you know, the biggest argument against growing out of India is that, you know, in India we have, I mean, you'll hear 400 to 800 million people who need a magic bus. So why are you going somewhere else? I mean, that's the constant conversation we're faced with. We've got a great CEO now, Jayant Rastogi, who has been with us now for four or five years. So it's, you know, knowing that, you know, operationally, we're fit for business here. We have a strong board. We're fairly well institutionalized. I think we still have some way to go, but we're on our journey of sort of being sort of less founder dependent, certainly. And, and I think, you know, we're nearly there on that. So it was the question also of, you know, I guess the readiness of our of me as the founder and also the operating team, the CEO, to say, look, okay, we're not got the bandwidth for this. Because as you grow, of course, it takes some level of the IP transference and how you think about contextually different countries might look and they've been you know Bangladesh and Myanmar and Nepal are all so different in structure and whilst the similarity lies in the child politically economically they're all very different from each other and, and that impacts how we run that organization so we took a very cautious approach Davil first of all you need almost to get above on the parapet really to sort of just say okay let's get some breath of fresh air and understand actually this could work somewhere else so I was fortunate enough to have that space and I think cautious because I needed to convince the board and the executive and the key stakeholders that this was a good idea. You know, we had, certainly had support for it, but I think there was sort of the, the jury's out kind of thing. One of the big pieces that I was keen to talk about was to the board was that, that actually, you know, the reason for doing this, first of all, I'd say, why not? You know, any other large court organization, it's a natural progression. You know, you want to grow, you want to, you know, it's good for talent, it's good for funds, it's good for all those other things that, but I wanted in Magic Bus to, I felt we would, what we were doing was, was so special. You know, we'd almost 
created this algorithmic approach, you know, to how a child goes to the program. The cost points were fantastic, $25 a year. You know, we were looking at some level of, you know, 80% surety. Once they go through the program, they can move from poverty. We measure it. So why not? You know, why wouldn't you want to give that to an Indonesia or a Myanmar, etc.? So enables us to have a larger conversation with, you know, whether that's with government, that's with some of the larger development organizations, with the general public, sort of the Montessori, if you like, you know, it's a system that we're trying to introduce. And so we just adopted different models. So in Nepal, we decided that we'd try out a train the trainer. In Bangladesh, we said we'd do a joint venture with ESDO, a large partner we have in Bangladesh. So we take half the costs, half the risk, but it's our program. And then Myanmar, which is probably ironically our most successful, is a full-flown magic bus sort of owned um, NGO, if you like. So we have our own sort of license to exist and raise money there. So, you know, and I think as we grow, Dave, it'll be, I'd like to return to that conversation. I think, you know, we, COVID obviously knocked us all out for six. You know, I think nothing really for three years could happen, but we're certainly getting a lot of interest. A lot of people in countries like Indonesia and in down in the Philippines, you know, saying, well, we really would love to bring the magic bus down here. We're willing to programmatically support it financially. So, you know, I think these conversations will start again. And, you know, I think why not? We're an Indian organization that's got a fantastic IP, you know, as an Indian organization, you know, we've got so much innovation and so much creativity. We know how to solve problems, particularly in the context of Asia. It would be wrong not to in many ways, I feel. So my next personal next chapter is institutionalizing Continuing with that sort of let's get rid of, you know, let's, I don't want to let a founder led mentality in, in our um, organization. I want it to be institutional with great leaders and great boards, but I'd also love to see the Southeast Asian programming flourish as well. I think you bring up an interesting point, which is when we are getting any sort of technology transfer, best practices, or even funding from the West, it's not questioned whether it's in the for-profit sector or the non-profit sector. And many of the individuals, for example, that are donors or that are board members uh, work for multinational companies themselves or work with companies that were born and sort of raised within India but have now gone across different geographies because to your point, they know that's where economies of scale exist. And if a consumer in this market would require it because they're the best quality provider of that service or product, the same thing is probably, you know, in other countries. And, and I guess the sort of irony of those same individuals who've grown up with those mindsets to then question why should an Indian NGO scale outside of India, it's somewhat hypocritical, I guess, because like you said, of course, you have to protect what's there and you can't have the same leadership team going after, you know, three different geographies. But an organization like Magic Bus, which is in every single state in the country, you already have understood what decentralized leadership means. This is not a like a new thing for you. And as long as it's a different team, but the same sort of or similar, I would say, curriculum and modify it for the region, which you already do, whether it's a Tamil Nadu program or a program in Magale, like you do, you look at what those differences are. Why shouldn't it sort of scale? And why shouldn't this be part of our national pride as, as well? And, you know, something that we should towards because communities, as you said, are probably more similar across India, Southeast Asia, Latin America and Africa versus communities from the West. And as you know, Dave, we tried, right? We've had some very generous donors incubate programs in Singapore, in London. And I tell you, in London, we were working in Lambeth, which is a 
you know, challenged London district, we have more out of school children working in that particular housing estate than we did in some of the most of the progress we have in, in India. The problems exist. It's just that where it's very difficult with Magic Bus is it's a multi-layered community project. So you start with the children, then it's the youth, then it's the parents, then it's the panchayats, the political. Everyone is engaged in the journey and the movement out of poverty. And whereas it's much more fractured and much more difficult in the West. You know, some of this on the scaling side, I guess what's remained the same for Magic Bus is you've always been community based. I guess another constant for the last 23 years has been the real sort of listening power to help the youth or the parents or the community decide what is the solution, not sort of saying this is the solution. How do you convince funders who are used to this franchisee widget approach to life? How do you convince them that the chaos, I guess, that Magic Bus operates in is more effective than sort of a streamlined, this is exactly how it needs to be done? Yeah, I think a lot of this is born out of experience as well, David. You know, over the decades we've worked, you understand. I mean, I think anyone who's been in the sector long enough understands that you can't work with segments in isolation. You know, I've done this before. You know, when we started Magic Bus, we I remember doing a program in Bombay Port Trust and we were doing a program. It was, I don't, stealing came up, you know, and theft. <laughs> so we took a program with the kids on theft. And I remember, you know, the next day or two days later, I remember turning up and the, half these kids would be beaten black and blue by their parents, right? Because they're like, they live in the docks. Their livelihood is stealing from the back of the journey, you know, back of the trucks. So they sort of take the, you know, dismantle these boats and that puts food on their table, you know? And so as a, that's an extreme example, but you get the fact that you can't, you know, you have to involve these layers. I think this idea of self-determination Again, is you know, it's fairly for me quite commonsensical that you don't want to go in and you know provide that direct. It's of course critical that once people have a level of knowledge of some of the rights that they so I think some of that there's some layering before we do all this. There has to be self-determination in these communities that start with these barasapras or they start with these elected councils amongst the children. These children are representative then of the community, the parents are then representative of the community we work very closely with the school committees and really with the right information, enable them really to make the decisions in their own communities. And many times, I guess, individuals who are new to the space are looking at, like you rightfully said, quick fixes and are saying, but why do you need to work with the parents? Why do you need to work with the community? Why do you need to work with the panchayat? Like, should it just be a one-on relationship with the child and that will solve everything? I mean, how do you explain in a manner that I guess donors can understand? And, and what happens if the donor doesn't understand? Do you walk away? What is the stance that y'all have taken? Yeah, good question. First of all, I mean, let's just talk about the basic principle of getting money for the program. Because I think, you know, when we, you know, Magic Bus started waving flags about, you know, sport for development using the program I just explained to you is, you know, if you sort of said that 20 years ago to an Indian donor, and we did, you know, that's Mickey Mouse, you know, I'd much rather fund this program, which does as a 101 in education, or there's a lively program with gender. People get these very tangible outcomes. And so in fact, actually to survive, Magic Bus had to go overseas to get its money. So I set up a Magic Bus UK office where there was just a slightly more evolved view, not just of philanthropy, but on, on life skills and behavioral change. And I think what is now I mean, I say this, but is now probably established as the most important element of poverty alleviation is the work that we do. But it wasn't understood then. 
So rather than change the funding landscape, which I couldn't afford to do because of time and, and effort, I started talking the same language as the funders. So whilst there was this very complex multi-layer program working underneath, I realized that if I just talked about some of the manifestations of that very complicated process we just spoke about, which was child marriage, finishing school, getting a job, whilst they weren't necessarily they weren't representative necessarily of the 80% of the work we do, but it was it was what they understood. And I think that's what actually was defined our growth, you know, and we were able to sort of say very simply, these are the three things we do really well. And people got it and they gave us the resources to deliver that program. But I think what's happening now, and it's a very challenging environment for us, is that, you know, as we scale, is that a lot of our money, a lot of our funds are indigenous funds. We've always wanted to get the money here in India, but you know, it's very heavily mandated, you know, and so especially on CSR, you know, you'll go to this geography, you'll spend two, you know, spend uh, two years, three years on doing this. And and our program is a seven year, hopefully, or certainly longer at the time. So, you know, you saw this kind of warped program where you're sort of delivering mandates of the 200 companies that fund you. And you get this mission drift, of course, because that's not actually what you wanted to do. And so I think how we're addressing that is a number of ways. One is that we are looking at different types of philanthropy, because I think, you know, we've historically gone for CSR funds, you know, this 2% bill, we've been very successful at going to companies, but we understand the restrictions. And so we're now looking much more at institutional funds, H&I philanthropists stepping up as well, which give us a lot more flexibility around usage of funds. So if we've done a great program with Nestle for the last two years, and Nestle want to withdraw, we then start to have the ability to invest our own philanthropy capital in that particular geography. So it's a switch of capital. It's a little bit of a switch of geography as well. And again, you know, as India catches up on this sort of, as you rightly said, the sort of this, I guess, more evolved view about, we'll listen to the nonprofits. They've been working in this environment for so long. Let's understand their need and then we'll deliver on that need rather than this is what we think um, needs to happen on the ground. Unfortunately, what it is lies at the moment, um, and I think this is sort of we're working hard on this, is that when you take these longer developmental processes of behavior change, it takes time and institutional donors, people like the Dell Foundation, people like UNICEF, et cetera, et cetera, understand it takes three, four, five years to make something happen. We're tending to see this sort of these funds in our adolescent program being sort of put into, sorry, directed from foundations. And in our livelihood programs, we're seeing much more CSR money, which is about the transaction, you know, so get us 10,000 jobs, get us 5,000 jobs. You know, in India, I think I was reading just this week, 40% of, you know, 20 to 23 year olds are out of work. So it's not a bad thing. It's needed, but it's right. It's recognizing in the model. I mean, ideally you'd love to have a funder or a partner come in and say, we'll take the child from 11 to 18 and, do the work you need to do and, you know, move that child out of poverty, make them successful, happy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I know that it, seven, it's, a, it's scientifically proven that if I take a child on a seven-year journey, they will be more successful, more happy and move from poverty, importantly, than if I work in two-year segments or three-year segments or one year or, or you know, do a lively program at the end. And so it's just convincing the donors that it's, it's certainly going to take some time. You know, we're so utilitarian with the poor as well. You think, you know, we'll solve a problem. But I love these conversations around happiness, you know, and we don't have happiness conversations about the poor. You know, we talk about the metrics of finishing school, of getting a job, of getting medicine if you're sick. And by themselves, they're not easy, but they're relatively easier to solve than this idea that actually you have this lovely person, this incredible person who is, you know, you want to see them lead their successful but yet very happy, fulfilling life. 
And so I think more conversations like that are needed. To your point, this this can't be measured by a metric in terms of have they passed school or have they increased their grades. The very first sort of program that I remember, at least, that Magic Bus was running, going to outside organizations. So this was the time that we were pitching Magic Bus to different children's organizations across the city and saying, look, can you, your children, use our program? And I still remember we ran this program in Mataran. It was with the girls that were part of the Sharanam Center. One of the girls, she was two years old, she had joined this center about four to six weeks beforehand and had not spoken a word, not one word in this four to six weeks that she was there. And our good friend, who was a mentor at Magic Bus, and unfortunately we lost due to suicide during the COVID period, Asif, he did what Magic Bus does, which was engage the kids, do the pilelo, do the same exercises. We were very lucky to see yesterday in Rajasthan that Magic Bus was hosting. And at the end of the trip, this particular girl started talking. And you're just like, this is the power of Magic Bus, right? You are actually getting children who, in this case, two years old, abandoned, put into a shelter, has no idea what's going on, and literally lost her reason to speak. She became communicative after this program. And now a successful young adult, earning money, paying taxes, supporting a family. But I think these are the kind of elements that one needs to go to the field to realize and can't be necessarily quantifiable just because the lived experiences of your mentors at Magic Bus and the communities you serve are lived experiences that honestly, perhaps even you and I can't even see or even imagine unless we're there. Yeah, oh, absolutely, David. I mean, and you've loaded those really in magical first, you know, I didn't talk about the bus, but why, why we called the magic bus. And it was those incredible sort of weekends away with children that, you know, who lived in Bombay, of course, in the slums of Bombay, but had never seen a tree or a forest or a beach or, you know, and taking them out into these environments, which by themselves were, were you know, potentially sort of risky for them because they hadn't seen these environments, but also this whole new world of opportunity that would open up every element of their emotions. I'm happy you remember that story as well. It was, it was a lovely story. Yeah, no, and, and to your point, even then, whether it was, you know, on the rugby field and, you know, these kids working or playing with, you know, individuals who were members of the Bombay Gymkhana or the volunteers. Because back then, at least we, you know, the Magic Bus program was fully run by volunteers. And of course, we would look at all the child safety norms and they were trained and there were sessions to ensure that, you know, we got the right people to be part of these weekends. Again, remember one of the weekends sitting across the campfire when the kids were sleeping with Vishal Torreja, who was doing an investment banking job in Mumbai. And uh, he was telling me about in college, him and a good, you know, a couple of friends started Dream a Dream. It was an organization that they did in college, but now he's in banking and and sort of through the Magic Bus experience, and he talks about this quite a bit, you know, it was that trip that sort of helped him say, look, I'm going to give up banking. I'm going to go to Dream a Dream full time and I'm going to really make a difference. And, and so I think it's not just, you know, the experiences Magic Bus has had with, with the community on the ground, but it's also been individuals who've been volunteers who come on these trips. Um, as well as donors. I mean, I think Amit and, you know, Arpita Bandari and so many others 
who are supporters of Magic Bus will talk about how their life has changed because of these experiences. And I think that's really where I hope the listeners of today's podcast realize is like, you got to just get into the space. It'll energize you. You will realize what you thought were problems are actually not problems. And you'll just get a lot of inspiration and hope. And I guess with that, Matt, I just wanted to thank you for all the phenomenal work you have done and continue to do across India and across the world. It really means a lot. And I know it's affected Gusto's journey quite a bit and given us the confidence to work with so many organizations like yourselves and enabling them to achieve their dreams just like you have with Magic Bus. Great. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. To know more about the show, our guest, and their work, go to dasra.org NCE. If you like No Cost Extension, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.